Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This is Ian Marks. I'm a filmmaker and a contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. And in this episode, I'll be speaking with Doug Emmett, cinematographer of Sorry to Bother You, the directorial debut of musician Boots Riley that tells the story of Cassius, an ambitious black telemarketer who rises through the ranks of his company by employing his white voice. Of course, success comes at a price. So while his co-workers struggle to unionize, Cassius learns a hard lesson about the pitfalls of privilege and capitalism that any contemporary viewer should be able to relate to. A couple of things before we begin. I'd imagine that if you're listening to this podcast, you've already seen the movie. So you'll know what we're talking about when we get into the camera and lighting of certain scenes. If you haven't seen the movie yet, this is a warning that we'll mention a few spoilers. Either way, please enjoy the conversation, which was recorded on a very hot and humid day in a very small apartment in New York City. So you'll have to forgive the air conditioner running on high in the background. Doug, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ian. So let's start things off by going back to something you said before we started rolling, that at this point in your career as a cinematographer, you don't come across a lot of scripts that you feel are up to your personal standards. So what's different about Sorry to Bother You? I'll give you the longer answer and trying to unpack some of what you were just saying, because I think that we all have to accept that there's like a natural pecking order. I'm not where I started. I started shooting about 10 years ago. And I'm not where I want to be yet. Hopefully it's a long career and I always remind myself that. And I have to remind my cinematography friends that as well because I think we sit around, we have beers and we bemoan the fact that we're not shooting big Oscar films, right? But like, look at the cinematographers that are shooting the films that we really, really respect. Most of them have been doing it for years, right? So I'm not upset at the fact that I'm not in line, you know, in the front of the line for some of those really great scripts that come out every year. Now let's also remember the fact that demand for those movies that had budgets in the 10 to $30 million range has now gone away in lieu of more television shows, in lieu of, of lower, smaller budget films that will end up eventually on Netflix, right? So I find myself reading a lot of scripts. Some of them feel like a rehash of, of scripts I've already read before, or they're just not interesting to me because maybe I've already shot movies that are like that. And, and though they might be very good scripts, I'm just looking to constantly shoot stuff that is new and different because I feel like as a, as a cinematographer and maybe just as a, a career professional, it's nice to grow. It's nice to uh, reinvent yourself. So to answer your, your later question, I had just been on a film that had fallen apart. I was in New York. It was May or late April of 2017. And we were three weeks from shooting and the actors dropped out. I went home to Los Angeles feeling really bummed out because at this point, um, if I was gonna shoot a movie that summer, uh, I should have already been hired for something and probably been in prep. As I had been on that other film, I was already four weeks deep into prep and we were a few weeks from shooting. I had a crew lined up and everything was ready to go and now I had nothing. So I land in Los Angeles and, and, I, and I call Matt, my agent at UTA, and I said, Matt, you gotta find me something. And he pitched me Boots' movie. 
and in fairness to Boots and the script and the movie, it's a really hard film to pitch in two or three sentences. And Boots has been doing a great job at pitching his film because he's been practicing it for so long. But hearing it for the first time was like, no, that sounds insane. And then I was like, oh wait, oh, and the, and the director is a rapper? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know, dude, you can send it to me, but like, <laughs> doesn't sound like something I'm necessarily gonna be interested in shooting. And so he sent the script over, it was a weekend, I, I think I gave it to my wife, and I was like, hey, Aaron, just read this for me, like, start getting into it, let me know what you think. And I'm like folding laundry in the other room, and all of a sudden I hear her yelling my name, I'm thinking, oh God, what's wrong? And I run into the room, she goes, you gotta sit down immediately and read this. I'm on page 20, it's incredible. So we sat together and read the script and kept checking in with each other, being like, what page are you on? Did this happen yet? Oh yeah, that happened. Oh, wait till you get to page 35, wait till you get to page 40. And I, I guess I just never really had an experience like that. And it was really exciting. And I called my agent, I said, listen, let me fly up to Oakland. I wanna meet Boots in person, let's do this thing. And Boots was willing to meet with me that Sunday afternoon, evening. So I, I went up there, we talked, and we had a really great dinner together. And um, a week later, I was hired and starting prep almost immediately. I think he was really in need of a DP because I think they were at that point probably five weeks out. Were you familiar with Boots as a musician or his music? Uh, had you heard of The Coup? I hadn't, no, I hadn't heard of Boots. I wasn't aware of The Coup and I hadn't listened to their music. So I immediately started cramming in as many coup songs as I possibly could to just, before I met with Boots, just to figure out who this guy was, get in his head. And immediately I detected this like strong social satire thread throughout his music. He's kind of a real revolutionary, fuck the man, anti-capitalist. His writing and his lyricism is really quite brilliant and he can really write prose and dialogue. So in hearing his music and, and knowing that he was a natural born storyteller through his music, I already knew I was in the, in the hands of, of like a true artist and someone who I could trust. And I think that's something when you go into a film, with a, especially with a first time filmmaker, you don't know how much you can trust them. So I knew almost right off the bat from listening to his music that like this is a guy that I was gonna be able to collaborate with and that I was excited to learn from. Let's talk about meeting creative partners for the first time. What's the foundation of that trust? Is it personal or artistic? He and I talked a lot about the movies that we enjoyed watching. We talked a lot about being people and humans. We talked a lot about our lives. And I, and I think it was actually more of like a session of getting to know each other and like, do these two people vibe? Do these two people, do they enjoy being in a room together? Can they share a meal? And I think that's always really kind of important to do in an interview and it's hard to fully assess that in just a couple hours. Usually an interview is shorter than that. It was nice that Boots and I got like three hours together to sit and really hang out. We did discuss my ideas for the look of his film and he brought his ideas. And I, I think I may have showed up with some images or references that, that I thought were uh, appropriate maybe in how to shoot the film. But he and I both agreed because the film was and we developed this language later on as well, but even from our initial meeting, he and I both sort of agreed that because the film is so wacky and out there and there are so many bizarro set pieces and things that are done practically on camera that the audience isn't always necessarily normally, you know, used to seeing, the cinematography didn't also have to be a 10 all the time, like full wacky. Like we just didn't have to go there with the camera work. We could hang back a little bit, be a little bit more conservative with the camera work 
because you know the actors, the set pieces, the scenarios in which you find yourself in were going to be so outlandish that it would have been just over the top and overkill to put an eight millimeter wide angle lens in someone's face and be like, look at us, because it just wasn't necessary. And I think that was good too, because I think that would have probably pushed me a little bit too far out of my comfort zone. Like I think that I wanted to serve the narrative, the story. I think I wanted to create a proscenium for actors to work. I think I wanted to serve his script. And, I, and for me, it felt like we can push the film visually in other ways. We can be bold with the use of our colors and our contrast. We can shoot anamorphic. We can be clever in the way we block and frame scenes, but we don't have to just be overly aggressive with the camera work for the sake of saying, hey, look at what we can do. Um, because certainly there are many other elements in the film that would do that for us. The press notes describe Oakland as one of the film's major characters. Why was it important to shoot on location in Oakland? And did that impact the way you photographed the film? Yeah, it had a huge impact. Well, first of all, the reason we shot there is Boots was insistent that we shoot in Oakland. So I, I think that though he could have maybe had a bigger budget shooting somewhere else, I recall Boots saying that he had to really fight for Oakland, and I'm glad that he did, and I think he was smart too. But he also knew as, a, as an independent artist, um, an indie filmmaker, he knew that because he had so many resources in that town that he would be able to get his friends to come out and help. And he has so many artist friends, people that came out and did big giant paper mache sculptures for us. We, he had an artist friend who did all of the pieces of Africa that were part of Detroit's art show. He had friends loaning us beautiful apartments and houses and we, we shot these locations, I, I think for virtually for nothing. And we just couldn't have done that. We couldn't have done this movie in 26 days without the help, without the community really embracing us. I also have to say, I think we shot 50% of the movie within like a three block radius in downtown Oakland, which is really terrific. They really just kind of gave us like free reign, carte blanche to do whatever we wanted in that town. Not to say that it was easy. I have to say, I think this was like probably the hardest movie I've ever made, but Oakland is visually inspiring and um, you drive through that town and, and you're just constantly amazed by how much graffiti and color and artwork there is all over this place. You walk into bars and restaurants and people's homes and you see the way that they've lit their interiors with different lights or people might put fabric over lampshades and that ca casts a certain glow. And so I was like, okay, we, we obviously we're going to let the lighting of these spaces sort of dictate how we light the movie. Not to get too techy right off the bat, but like we had some airy sky panels and we could just dial up the color and choose whatever kind of gel color we wanted. And so like Gaffer and I and Boots would often just sit there and spin a knob and be like, oh, we like this color, we like that color, like let's go with this tonight, you know, and this makes sense for this location. Or you walk in and there's a really bright, vibrant green fluorescent light bulb that the bartender chose to put in a lamp on her bar and we're like, well, great, let's use that and let's add 10 more of those, you know? So it was truly inspiring and I, I don't get to say that about locations too often. The thing about Oakland, too, is that it really truly is a community of artists, of people that live and die by the work that they're doing, and not because they necessarily think that they're going to get famous doing it or that they're going to get rich doing it, but because it truly speaks to them. And, and I saw that day in, day out. And so any time I was on set and it was a late, late, you know, 14, 15 hour day and we, things were falling apart, I kind of had to go back to that and be like, this is my struggle, this is my art, and, and I can suck it up and I can 
deal with the fact that we, you know, we have a car that doesn't run, we have a process trailer that the wheels just fell off of. And, and I'm not being hyperbolic. So, um, you know, there were some long days on that shoot, but um, I was inspired, I was constantly inspired. Yeah, this do or die kind of art, uh, because it's so personal, you risk alienating the audience, uh, kind of like Detroit does at, at her performance. Uh, but also if you connect, that can be a very deep experience. And that's all boots. And that's in his music and that's in his script. And, um, and that's also why the script spoke to me. And I think culturally we're in, a, we're in a place right now where we should be having these conversations. Thank God we have filmmakers like Boots out there who are, are saying, hey, look, we need to talk. We need, we need to discuss this. And so I felt it was a great honor to be able to be part of a film that made its mission to raise some awareness and get people talking. And also did it in a way that it wasn't gonna like talk down to people, right? It wasn't too heavy handed. Boots is obviously a very funny person, but he's a very smart guy. It's not a subtle film, nope. but it's also <laughs> not a heavy handed one either, uh, which uh, is a tough it's line clever, to walk, I though, imagine. Right? Um, and it certainly does a good job of taking the viewer out of their comfort zone. Um, but I guess that's what it takes to wake people up. Yes. That's a great point. In terms of lighting and being inspired by people's homes and the locations where you were shooting, was it a matter of just augmenting what was there or were you trying to transform these environments? There, there's an element to augmenting light, but also knowing that the light and the color that these smaller lights would give off would never be enough to really truly illuminate anything. So in some cases, yeah, it was just adding more of that light, that color. Maybe it was a certain quality of like, harsh light, light from a certain angle that we liked. But maybe sometimes that location, um, we didn't end up shooting in, but I just happened to really remember liking the color or the quality of that light and we would use it somewhere else. So that I think was mostly, it was less about necessarily augmenting and more about kind of keeping like a Rolodex of lighting that we could access throughout the process of making the movie and applying it in certain scenes. The bar, location might have been the closest in terms of just replicating what they already had and just adding to it. Um, and then there's some locations like um, when Cassius becomes a power caller and ends up in a new, in his new fancy apartment, um, there's this rich, deep, saturated blue color at night that we chose and a warm backlight. That was just because um, I just, Thought, Boots and I thought that that would look great. And so we just ran with it. But not to say that that wasn't uninspired by something else that we saw already, you know, while scouting. At what point did you begin your collaboration with the other departments, like production design, costumes, etc.? I started working with Jason and Deirdre really early in the process. I think as soon as I got to Oakland, they were already there. And Jason had already scouted quite a bit. And I think it just was kind of a natural mind meld between all of us and with Boots. We were all sort of on the same page, which was really nice, because that doesn't always happen. Deirdre and Jason, I think, are both brilliant, and I was just lucky to be able to photograph the stuff that they were putting in front of the lens. One of the sets that stands out to me the most is the Regal View Call Center. The Regal View Call Center is a really great example of um, that perfect meld of production design and costume, um, where you have uh, a discussion. We've had blue, we painted blue walls in the, in the call center with the orange 
Cat5 cables, data cables going down the middle of the room with the orange bulbs that glow every time a call and a deal is made. And then Deirdre dressed the background extras in hues of orange and blue so as to let our characters pop off the screen a little bit more that your attention would go to them because they were dressed um, in their own way. Um, and so those are the kind of, kind of conversations that we would have, but it, it was a, a beautiful kind of marriage, I thought. But I think often Deirdre would go on the scouts with Jason and myself, and we would all talk about um, how to direct the eye. You know, it was always about how do we focus the attention of our audience and without having to necessarily beat them over the head with camera work. And instead of having to be overly aggressive again once with the camera, how can we do it with color and production design? I really liked the effect of rendering the call center in this harsh blue, almost monochromatic fluorescent light, while the manager's office feels uh, much warmer and more natural and incandescent. It's like, even at the bottom, there's still this hierarchy of aesthetics. Yeah, that was, that was very intentional. Was, like you said, there were warm incandescent lights on the boss's desk. We painted that room a kind of a ambery, orangey, yellow. That contrast was always important. I think we were always trying to strike that con contrast of like the man versus the underlings. And this social dichotomy is something that's repeated throughout the film in different ways. Uh, another example that comes to mind is in the difference between poor Cassius's garage apartment with the warm light and kind of this personal touch and rich Cassius's downtown pad, which looks more like it came out of a CB2 catalog. It's like how you would decorate your apartment if you came into a lot of money very quickly, but didn't really have taste or passion for what you were designing. I mean, that being said, some of the artwork that's in that loft apartment is actually very cool. And the artwork does speak to the character and, and speaks to Detroit as well, because I think some of that artwork was like, the idea was like maybe some of that was hers or. Let's talk about the low key science fiction elements of the film, because what it does very well is take a lot of kind of far out what if premises and makes them believable, um, at least up to a certain point. Yeah, I, I kind of like that Boots' version of this reality is not too far from, from our present day reality. And I think that's why it's important that he's telling the story. Because it's not absurdist when you look at it through that lens. <laughs> you know, it's almost very realistic. But then things do get absurd towards the end. It's like hitting the drop on a roller coaster. You know, uh, how do you reconcile the natural and the fantastical from a cinematographic perspective? Well, if I can ask, if I can ask you a question, did you feel like the look or the style of the film changed at all from the first half or the first two thirds to the final third in terms of cinematography? Um, not in an overt way, uh, tonally it felt darker towards the end, more ominous, but that could be just because I think those key scenes were taking place at night, um, like Detroit's performance and Steve Lift's party and the riot. At the end, when Cassius moves back into his garage apartment and gives the Maserati to Salvador, it felt like the beginning of the film again, like we were kind of starting over. Things were back to normal. I would have to say there's two things. One, I would hope that the audience didn't notice a huge detectable change in terms of the cinematography at least. Um, obviously the content is wildly different in the last third versus the first two thirds. When Cassius gives Sal the Maserati, we shot that on the first day. And we also shot one of the first scenes on the first day, which was 
Cassius and Detroit in bed together and the garage door flipping open. So there is a consistency to the look that you're detecting there, most likely because I think we were shooting that on the same day. But also I think because the scenes were asked to be photographed that way. And I think that I always look at individual scenes. I obviously, as a cinematographer, you, you are the manager of the look of the movie overall, but you also have to look to individual scenes to the mood and the tone of that scene, and, and it kind of will tell you and ask you to be photographed a certain way. As a, as a DP, I think if you miss the mark, then there's a discrepancy between the visuals and the narrative. Then I think you're maybe you're not necessarily doing the right thing. I mean, look, I don't think there are any mistakes either. I think if you shoot a movie a certain way, you intend for it to look that way, then that's not wrong, right? You just made a choice, so that's cool. I can only speak to my own experience. I would say that I didn't intend for the movie to look any different when the Equisapiens are revealed. Yes, it's a dark scene. It's a darkly lit room when you find those characters, mostly because, again, for mood and tone purposes, I thought that it would be strange for them to be hanging out in a brightly lit fluorescent room. I think it made more sense. Boots and I talked, obviously, a lot about the room that they, we would find them in. We scouted multiple locations. We were looking at that time for um, rooms that felt like industrial bathrooms slash locker rooms kind of shower rooms, um, if you will. And we happened to find one in Oak in Berkeley that was a, a high school. Um, and it was a men's locker room. And we brought in a few stalls and we, um, you know, married that to a, a location that had a hallway, which was married to another, you know, to Steve Lift's mansion. So when we talk about me having to shoot in multiple locations, like just in the span of three minutes uh, in, in the cut, we were in four different locations. So um, just to make those scenes all cut together was, I thought, a triumph in its own. I had originally misjudged the film's aspect ratio, which is actually 240 to 1. Um, but I still got the sense that you may have used a combination of anamorphic and spherical lenses. I would say we shot probably like 95% of the film on anamorphic lenses. We used the Cook series of the newer Cook Eye anamorphic lenses. We had an Alexa Minis. All the equipment was rented from Keslo Camera at a significant discount, so I want to shout them out and say thank you. They really, really embraced the movie and really helped us out there. Again, it's one of these movies where I think we made it. We started making it for, for around $2.5 million, and um, well, we learned halfway through the movie that that wasn't going to be enough. So we were having to be scrappy, you know, and it was a constant battle uh, to get the movie made, to get it finished. The choice to shoot anamorphic, I think, was, was mostly because I think we're so used to seeing a lot of television shot with spherical lenses, a lot of 16.9 on TV. Boots and I are both cinephiles and love the look of scope. And um, I think he just always knew he wanted to shoot his first feature in anamorphic. And what spherical lenses did you match with the Cooks? So we shot, if we shot about 98% of the film with anamorphic lenses, the only times we used spherical were for the uh, zoom shots or the Zolly shots or the trombone shots that you see in the film, primarily because an anamorphic zoom doesn't allow you to close focus as much as you need it to. You know, we had to make it work, so we went to spherical. It doesn't bother me. I'm shooting this TV show right now in anamorphic, and occasionally if we have to use a spherical lens for some reason or another, it's fine. I don't think the audience cares. I don't think it takes you out of it at that moment. And if they do notice a, a change in your 
lensing, then you've obviously you're doing something wrong. In what ways is working with a director with close to 30 years of experience as a musician different than working with a director with experience solely in motion pictures? Does that cross over? How could it not? I mean, because he approaches his storytelling from a completely different perspective. Um, and yet he still is just a, a true bona fide filmmaker as well. He went and studied film as a younger uh, college student, and then he just started rapping and making money with his music career, so he just went that direction instead. He's directed and, and starred in his music videos, but that was pretty much the extent of his production experience, I think. But knowing that Boots has spent his lifetime collaborating with other artists, with people, with a wide range of needs, and you know, you work with musicians who um, can be divas in their own sense, I think, and he had, as the band leader, had to figure out how to get all these different egos to cooperate and to make an album, and he had to do this time and time again. So having had years of experience collaborating with people, I think gave him a really great, strong foundation on how to work with different personalities when it came time to make his movie. He's great. He knows how to work people, and he knows how to talk to people, and he knows that certain technicians might not understand him or his reasons, and he has a, a casual way of getting people to work outside their comfort zone, and the Example he gave me was when he's recording his album, he has a sound engineer working the console at the recording booth, and he'll say, turn that dial up to 10, turn it to 11, turn it up. And the engineer's, oh, it's gonna be distorted. It's not gonna sound right, it's gonna be weird, like you can't do it that way. And Boots is like, yeah, I know, just do it. Let's just hear what it sounds like. I just wanna hear it. I'm not saying I'm gonna commit to it, but like show me, let's try something different. And every time they did it, Sound recorders look at Boots and go, oh, hey, you're, you're onto something. I've just never tried that. And so that was kind of his frame of reference for dealing with, with people um, in our industry where, you know, I'm not saying it happened on, on our movie, but someone had said, oh, well, it won't work or that's not a good idea because, you know, X, Y, Z. He'll just say, hey, you know, just try it anyway and let's just see what happens. Instead of being frustrated or upset or feeling challenged. Boots, I think because of his years of experience, was cool and respectful of people and could, could be patient. And he could explain why he wanted someone to work outside their comfort zone a little bit. Did you ever find yourself in that position, uh, working out of your comfort zone? My whole approach to working on movies, especially with Boots, knowing that it was gonna be such a wild ride, my whole approach is to just never say no and to always just say, yeah, let's see if we can make it work. Now, deep inside, I might be terrified because I, you know, this, this shot might not work and we might spend an hour setting it up and it might all fall apart. And then Boots will have lost an hour of directing his actors and the producers will be pissed because they've just rented this piece of equipment that's not working the way I want it to work and blah, 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 and now I fucked up and I failed. So you don't want to fail, but you also don't want to fail your director and just say, hey, no, 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 that's not gonna work without even trying it, right? And so if this movie, if I'd gone into this movie just being conservative and saying no, you know, half the time, like, well, what kind of movie would we have made? Also, like, Boots and I, what kind of collaboration would that have been? So I'm not there to tell Boots no. I'm there to say, yeah, let's well, great. Let's figure out a way to do it. Let's do it. It may not be the right way because I don't necessarily even know how to do it the way that Boots is asking. Or I might just 
pitch an alternative version of that shot that could be perhaps more easily attained, but doesn't change the intent of what he's trying to achieve. So I felt that we had a really great collaboration in that sense, but I also knew that I could always trust him to be a fair and patient person with me. And I always felt that I owed him that in return. And so it was, I think it was because he had been so, he spent so many years as a musician dealing with those people that he was cool and chill on set, even as everything kind of fell apart around him. And that was every day. I gotta give him a lot of credit, man. Every day it was hard. It was always a battle. We never had enough money. We never had enough time. I know people, filmmakers say that, but like when, and I mean, I said this earlier, like we had a car that would run for five minutes and then explode and steam would come out and we'd be standing around not making our day with no alternative because we couldn't get a second car. And then eventually we did get a second car and we arted it up. Jason Casvardi arted it up and made it look perfect. And that thing didn't run either. So like, what are you doing? <laughs> we have two cars that don't run. So okay, great. Let's put it on, let's put it on a process trailer. We'll tow it with an insert car. Well, we don't have a lot of money for that. So we got some like budget, budget process trailer. And then I'm shooting Keith in the driver's window and I got the camera outside his car and I'm sitting next to the wheel well of this insert car when all of a sudden I smell some burning rubber and I hear some clanking and I look down and the wheel is wobbling around in the wheel well and the next thing you know, like pop, the wheel just pops off and like kind of shoots out toward me a little bit and it's in a cage and it's rattling around and like lug nuts are flying everywhere, literally popping off. And now we're stranded again, you know, and now we're losing time. And so that was just one of our 26 days, but it almost kind of felt like we, every day was a little bit like that. Um, you know, the wheels were coming off and we'd have to figure out how to put it back on. So there, you know, State Trooper and I are walking around picking up lug nuts and reattaching the wheel. Because what are you going to do? You're just going to keep on, you know, keep on making your movie. Because that's what all those Oakland artists would, would do, you know? <laughs> you just got to go. You can't just sit around and... and bitch and moan and gripe that the wheel fell off. Like, you gotta get dirty, put the wheel back yeah, on you and keep rolling. can't just pack it in when things get rough. I just truly believe that we were making a really important movie and I always believed in Boots and, and I always wanted to give him 110% every single day, no matter how frustrating it could be. That was cinematographer Doug Emmett talking about his work on Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts and articles on the art and craft of cinematography at ASCMag.com. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.